Welcome to Harvest Time. My name is Chris Harper, and our host on this program is Pastor Gary Walton, the lead pastor at Harvest Baptist Church. Again this week, we have a very special program planned for you that will take the entire hour. This is part two of last week's interview. Here's Pastor Gary Walton with the details. Hi, Pastor. Hey, half a day, Chris. Yeah, uh, we are in part two of what we think is a real special privilege that we have at Harvest Time to be able to spend some time having a conversation with uh, Dr. Les Olala. If you weren't with us last week and are not familiar, Dr. O is a longtime friend of Harvest Ministries. He's been involved uh, in traveling out to Guam on many occasions. Um, Daco, I think this is your maybe 14th time? I believe it is, 14th. Yeah, so since about 2000, a little bit after that, he's come on many different occasions, and his influence on our church is is significant, uh, not just because of his uh, many times a visit here and teach and, and preach, but also because of his influence on some of the leaders of our ministry over the years, and especially over the last 20 years, I think. Um, just many, many people that have come through Harvest and served, that have had connections with, been mentored in different ways by Dr. Ola. So he's really shaped our culture in so many ways. And uh, we have the privilege to do a little bit more of an extended time, not just the maybe normal 25 minutes, but we'll see how this goes, but uh, take a longer time. So Dr. O, thanks for giving us the time. Thank you for coming out again. Well, as I told the f- folks on staff, it's it's humbling for me. And I'm honored, really, to be a tiny, tiny part of what God is doing through Harvest Ministries here. And, of course, the friendship with you over the years and uh, the time that we've been able to get with Chris during these days, uh, it's just been very refreshing for me. Well, we're honored by that. On a personal level, you know, your mentorship in my life has been meaningful to me. I've mentioned you're one of my heroes, uh, and I don't— say that lightly. There's just a, a handful of people that are put in that place, and I'm thankful for that. And uh, it's been our privilege to get uh, the time that we have with you here during these days. You're getting ready to go, right? Well, Lord willing, tomorrow morning head for the airport and get back to Tokyo and Houston and South Carolina and then Iowa. And uh, so we'll, we'll uh, just go one phase at a time. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now before we back up to some of your story. Um, uh, connected with Building Great Leaders, um, and that's been for 10 years maybe? It's just right at 10 years now. I think uh, this coming spring will be 10 years that uh, we we started Building Great Leaders. And uh, it was really uh, when we discovered we were in a kind of a unique scenario in our early 70s, uh, and the, a lot of the young people who were in a youth group in the late 60s, early 70s said, your burden has always been building leaders. Yeah, Let's just continue doing that. So they helped us form a 501c3 called Building Great Leaders. And the greatness, obviously, is the servant. Who is great among you, let him be servant of all. So the greatness is not a boasting we're going to build you great. No, the greatness is being a servant. And Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. So that is really what's behind the building great leaders. It is the emphasis on on uh, that. So they they helped us get started. Some of the people who were 
were working with us in ministry many years ago in the early 70s, um, many of whom are still connected, plus others who have picked up uh, with that. So we have been now, this spring will be 10 years that we have been doing that. And we've traveled many parts of the world and emphasizing our passion to strengthen the hearts of God's servants and to lift the hands of God's people. And that's really what what uh, we, we want to continue to do. And it might be educator meetings, it might be pastor meetings, might be senior saint retreats. It, 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 there's no one kind of meeting. It's many different kinds, but emphasis on being servant leaders. For some, I think, might be interested, like physically, uh, you know, where are you? Where's home base for you right now? You're spending some time in some different locations. Yeah, well, with our travel, we have been hard to nail down to one, but our our focus right now is going to be spending a great deal of time in Ankeny, Iowa, with Faith Baptist Bible College Seminary, working there with staff, students, uh, doing a lot of meetings out of there. Dr. Tillotson, of course, is a friend of Harvest. He's a personal friend of mine, and we're thankful for him. And, of course, Dr. Heron, who is a pastor here for many years, is uh, one of the main leaders there. So, we're, of course, we love faith and excited for that ministry. Yeah, it's interesting how God put that team together. Uh, Dr. Tillotson requested of the board when they hired him if if they would provide an apartment for Charlene and me between our meetings if he were to accept the position there. And um, and he did. So we've we've been engaged there since Dr. Tillotson has been there. Very great honor to be tied in with him and his vision. And it goes back to, you know, I, when I, I used to play hockey, I played 10 years of veterans hockey when I went to Northland. And uh, Jim Tillotson is a good hockey player. And uh, he played center on a line because when you're division two club, you don't have to be a, a student. You can be on staff and play club. And so I played club hockey uh, when we had home games and Tillotson was center and I played left wing on that <laughs> on that ice hockey. And then I pulled my hamstring working on my black belt in basketball. And uh, <laughs> that's what I tell people. Yeah. So I had to really slow down. I remember some uh, of those days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah kind of dangerous, dangerous days. When, but uh, yeah, thank the Lord that God has that team together that's reaching really a, a many parts of the world in the people being trained. And thank the Lord for the connections here. Some might be interested kind of from your background in whether do you get up to Dunbar, do you get up to Northland very often? And Yeah, we have we have not been parked in any one place for very long. Right. But we just came from there just before we, we came here. We drove to South Carolina from there because we were up in Upper Michigan at a Bible camp. And then uh, we go and our grandson and his wife bought our home. So they kept our bedroom like it is. And then uh, our grand, our son-in-law and daughter live in South Carolina. They built a new home and built a grandma-grandpa room for us. And then we have the apartment in Ankeny, Iowa, and then we have our car. <laughs> and I think we probably spend about an equal amount of time in all four landing places. So that's the way it is now. But Lord willing, the more and more time will be spent uh, in Ankeny, at the college, and then doing meetings from there. 
Well, what we've been doing during this little two-part segment is uh, I asked you if you'd be willing to just kind of back up through your life, and we looked at some of the seasons of your life, different ways that God had blessed you. And last time we were talking, we talked about um, your personal spiritual life and journey. Um, we talked about Lesson Charlene, the, the story of you and Mrs. Olala, and then the early years as a youth pastor and then traveling with Life Action. And uh, I thought today, if we could continue on, I'd like to key on on a couple areas, ask you some questions about it, and then again, just use them as as uh, launching pads for some other conversations about life and ministry. But uh, if we could talk about the Northland story and then maybe just talk about finishing well. And um, I, uh, along the way, we might, in fact, we will add in or ask you about some less Olala quotes. And uh, those quotes come from a little book that Judy Coates wrote a few years ago on your life and your ministry, A Man Among Them, The Less Olala Story. And I thought that would be helpful just because uh, I think they do give a good capstone of some of the things that have been your burdens. And uh, so I'll maybe ask you about some of those on, along the way, if that's okay. Sure. So uh, the Northland story, um, early 1980s, uh, God begins to move you and you had some options and you ended up saying yes to God's call up to Northland. In what year? Well, when I actually signed the contract, I believe it was November of 1983, when I I signed the contract to come after some times of interviewing with the board and seeking the interest. We were right on the verge of moving to Redding, California uh, to take a ministry there. In fact, we had literally all but moved because we had already gone back and forth for two years working uh, with the church and camp and and Christian school there. And uh, the opportunity for Northland was presented. I wasn't sure why it was there. In fact, when I, when I asked the board, why is Northland there? And uh, when I heard the testimony of Dr. Paul Patz, he was a guy never, I don't think he ever finished one year of school. Uh, had an alcoholic father. He had to drop out of school to to uh, take in the crops, even as a student. So he never never finished, as far as I know, one, one complete year of school. And uh, he became a believer. He got on his knees behind the plow, plowing with a team of horses. And uh, he came to accept Christ. He said he had lied to a pastor in Pound, Wisconsin, when he told him that he was saved, when he he knew he wasn't, and he was so convicted, he stopped behind that team of horses and got on his knees in that field and accepted Christ. And he said, I not only knew I was saved, but he said, I also knew God had something for me to do in his work, knowing he couldn't preach, uh, as you know, any of his story, uh, he went to a dentist. They drilled into his jaw. He ended up with cancer, had to remove half his jaw, half of his tongue. And if you've ever known him, he struggled greatly to speak. And uh, and yet he knew God had something for him to do. And as God gave him a very genius, inventive mind, he ended up, I believe, with if I'm not mistaken, it was like 28 Canadian patents and 27 U.S. patents on farm equipment, mm-hmm. implements. And uh, 
He was the one who started the barn cleaners and the hook and eye chain that solved the problem of chain catching going around the things. And and so uh, when he gave his testimony, his burden was to get people saved, get them trained, and get them sent to the harvest field. And I thought, you know what, I I can... I can relate to that. I flew to California, and uh, and I told him that uh, I was going to Wisconsin, and uh, that was that was a major major step for us, but it was a risk step. I think you and I have talked about risk over the yeah. past, and there are uh, there are comfortable decisions that you can make that you're safe, and that's what Reading, California would have been. It was a ministry there; nothing new would have had been created. You just had to continue to manage what was there and preach the word and help with the camp and so on. But this was a venture of faith, and I did not feel capable of that. But I did feel like God had given me a burden to be a part of training workers. And I thought, I can hook into getting involved in people who get saved, trained, and sent. And as we look at our Great Commission responsibility, so we we took the position. In fact, Dr. Heron was the camp director. He had just gotten there that year earlier, and we came went in and did a, a camp. And then uh, Harold Patz, who was the, uh, the kind of the coordinator executive of the college at that time, and if I'm not, if I remember correctly, there were about 87 students. I could be wrong exactly on that number. And uh, I remember our first staff meeting seemed like there were about 15 staff people in that staff meeting. And we met behind you. Remember the old white chapel where we stored the props for the plays eventually. And, uh, and it was, it was a venture that turned into an adventure, but it was a step of faith. And I learned what many things I've done in ministry. I took a risk by faith, not foolish, but by faith that beyond what I felt was my capacity or capability and just trusted God to work. But then the key there was hiring gifted people who could do what I could not do. I want to ask you some more about that that faith and risk in just a minute. But real quick, let me back up to the Paul Pats story, the Papa Pats story, because I think it's so significant um, and instrumental for many people I know that are listening, our church family, people across the island, in just his willingness, right? His willingness to take whatever he had and to give it to God and what happened as a result of that. I mean, it's really a powerful part of the story of this little college up in Wisconsin, but intersecting then with your life. Yeah, that was very key because the sun never sets on Northland on Papa Pat's vision. Yeah, just a simple farmer. Thousands. I've been in many parts of the world where the graduates are in prosperous, soul-winning, life-building, discipling ministries whether it's in South America, Africa, or here in Guam, or in the islands. And, and uh, uh, it's, it's just amazing to see the fruit of a humble man who surrendered. And I, he gave me a hint of how much he gave to Northland. 
and it was way into the millions. But that would have never been a boast of his. Uh, someone asked him, uh, you know, Mr. Patch, don't you ever go to Florida? And if you knew him, he was a hunter, big game hunter. He said, I went to Florida once. I didn't leave my wallet. I did not have to go back, if you remember how he talked. <laughs> he said, I, I didn't leave my wallet, didn't have to go back. But his life was not vacation. His life was not relaxation. His life was commitment to get the work of God done. And he took that Patch Corporation factory that's still uh, going in great guns and took what was made, the 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 Patch Corporation didn't give to Northland. The individuals did. Paul Patch and, and the, the sons and, and daughters that were committed to see their dad's vision go on. And uh, and so consequently, uh, he, he wanted, because he knew uh, school teachers, missionaries, pastors, youth workers, they did not make the big salary. So he said, I want to pay for their tuition, if they can pay for their room and board and, and work, and they can work. And he had a tremendous work ethic. Mm -hmm. And I think of the joy of every building project we did and pacing off the corners with him and driving in the stakes on all the next vision that he had for what had to come based on the number in our, in our student body, the growth that was reflected there. And it was such an honor working with that team and uh, such a thrill to see him come sometimes sneak back in the back of chapel or in the back of a camp service, just weeping. And he would say, I am in the ministry. Never had an education, but I am in the ministry. Yeah, amen. And the fruit of that is just a thrill to my heart. So you came to Northland, uh, what, what year was that, 1980? 83 is when I signed, we moved on to campus in the first part of April in 1984, we moved our family onto campus, and we lived in that campus house for about 18 years, okay. right there in the center of campus. And you started, I mean, you, I think you just mentioned 87 students, maybe 15 faculty. Anything that's, you know, like on the, just so uh, on the top of your mind about those first, you know, those first days. You said something about your first staff meeting? Yeah, I... I told the first staff meeting, I, I said, you know what? We're in the middle of the woods in northern Wisconsin, and people are going to think that we're less than intelligent. <laughs> but let's prove that God can use less than intelligent people. And I said, we are not going to boast in ourselves. We are not going to go out and promote ourselves. We are going to just do what God told us to do in building God's people, making disciples, sending them out to the harvest field. And if God gives us 50, we'll train 50. If he gives us 500, we'll train 500. We have no numerical goal. And I said, I told our staff many times, we do not have to grow, but we do have to obey. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's up to God who we want to bring here to train. And amazingly, we ended up with uh, students from 40, 42 states, I believe, and 15 foreign countries. And the people would wonder, why would they go there? You can't, it's not even on some maps. <laughs> I tell people, we widened the road to put the white, white line in last summer. <laughs> and uh, so it's not, a, it's not a thriving metropolis. And yet God in his sovereignty, so he could receive the glory, 
chose to put that there to prove that he can do this because none of us were gifted enough. I certainly was not. But as we hired skilled people in given areas, uh, it was to the praise of his glory that he provided the people that he provided for us uh, to, to do the work that had to be done because it was beyond my capacity. And God really did bless uh, the ministry during those years. And if you look back on it, you know, would you be able to identify a couple of key areas? Why do you think God, you know, just by his grace, put his hand of blessing on, on Northland during those years in your personal ministry? Well, when the board asked me uh, when I was in the process of being considered, they said, how many students do you think we could have here? Hmm. And I said, I, I know we're going to be uh, over 300 within five years. And they said, where would they come from? And I said, when pastors in the United States of America hear that there is a Bible college teaching servant leadership, I said, there's going to be a sucking sound getting in here. Hmm. I said, we've traveled the United States the years that God gave us with Life Action Ministries. I kept a record. I kept observation of church's strengths and weaknesses and passions and things that I thought were weakness, things that I thought were strength. And, uh, and I noticed that there was, there was a trend of just real finger-snapping leaders, and they bark, and people jump to attention. And I thought, you know what? That is not a biblical leadership. And, and way back in Philippians chapter 2, when you see the kenosis and uh, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ, I said, I believe when, when uh, pastors hear there's a Bible college teaching servant leadership, I said, I think there'll be a sucking sound getting in here. And I said, that's where I think they're going to come from. I said, I think they'll come from all over the country. But not thinking of how many foreign countries would, uh, would be having students. Doc, oh, I know you are aware, more aware than maybe anybody uh, over the last, I don't know, recent past 15, 20 years, and especially now in the last more recent years, there's been an implosion of ministries um, where the leadership model is very different from what you just described. I want to ask you about what that what servant leadership means to you, but um, man, we just hear story after story, some of them very prominent, not just in Christian circles, but you know, across our, uh, you know, our, our newsreels of large ministries with kind of dominant um, leadership that along the way is imploded. And, you know, many years ago, you started talking about, and you're not the only one, but you really started talking about this servant leader model. What, what did that, what does that mean to you? Well, I think what it, uh, it's, it's Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took on him the form of a servant that being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God highly exalted him gave him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what it looks like, the mind of Christ in me, humbling myself, not building my reputation, not building my name, magnifying his name, building his cause to 
the praise of his glory. And that's Ephesians 1. And we've been chosen to the praise of his glory, been redeemed to the praise of his glory, and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. And I think servant leadership looks like that. I don't think about me. I don't build myself. I uh, have his mind who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation. And so many that I, I thought, boy, I mean, I, I'm thankful for every soul saved through some of these works. But then I would think, boy, it's such a self-promotion. It is such a... I just can't see that that is how God is going to be honored and how he is going to be glorified. So that's what it looks like. I'm not thinking me. I'm thinking, how can I be a tool in God's hands to be a servant to reflect the mind of Christ that I might be able to function as him, which means ultimately I'm dead to myself. He became obedient unto death. And Paul says, I die daily. Paul became the model of that kind of serving. He became the model of that kind of leader. And uh, when he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, he said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, knowing the more I love you, the less I'm going to be loved. And Paul says, I will very gladly give myself to you who I know are not going to love me in return. And uh, a carnal heart can't do that. A carnal heart would react to that. A carnal heart would think, think of somehow or another to belittle those kind of people. But Paul says, you know what? I very, very gladly, I'll give you my things and I'll give you myself. In First Thessalonians chapter 2 models that to a T. I think one of the amazing parts of your ministry and, and sort of the Northland story, and I think especially... Um, amazing to to maybe maybe a lot of people that were onlookers or looking on was the fact that over the years, as um, God blessed the ministry and you know a number of students graduated from there, the the uh, result was pastors, missionaries, Christian workers spread out as you've already said, you know, really around the world. You said there's not a place where uh, you know the sun sets on. Uh, on these servants of God, many of them just faithfully serving in, you know, in ministries that others wouldn't know about. They're not known. Um, and so there's just this whole army, I think, uh, of that. But I think the amazing thing is, uh, and interesting is that, um, it, and along with that, there have been, uh, you know, a number that have, um, that were really mentored by you that became leaders of some significant places. And, uh, you know, even now there's uh, mentors of yours that are leading colleges and universities and connected with seminaries and leading ministries that are significant. Um, and uh, actually, it's, uh, it's kind of a funny thing. I haven't said this to you, but um, one of the, you probably heard this at some point, but when I, w when I graduated from college, went to, went, and was going to seminary, one of the critiques I heard of Northland in, in just kind of sideline, and nobody was critical, everybody loved what Northland was doing, but I heard that um, Northland's emphasis on servanthood was great, but they'd lost um, some of the ability to mentor leaders. 
So the servanthood was very strong. It was great, but there weren't leaders coming out of it. I don't know if you ever heard that. Well, I heard, I certainly heard that implied. Yeah. And uh, it, people didn't normally hesitate to tell me that we were kind of, I won't say the word that it's called, but you know what I'm saying? But I, I would chuckle to myself and said, you know, God knows how to make himself known. And the people who are building these great, so-called great leaders, we'll see how they last. But when God does the work, it uh, it's it's a lasting work, and it's kind of significant to look at where God put these people, who might have been considered to be simpletons. And you look at ministry after ministry; the top leadership in these ministries were Northline grads or had worked with Northline for a number of period of time. And it doesn't hit you until you go in retrospect. And you think, well, look who God put there and look who God put there and look who God put there. And and I've been invited to speak ordinations of some of these that are being installed as presidents, pastors and presidents of colleges and seminaries. And 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 I'm the one invited to speak the the installation and um, and I think, you know, this is only to the praise of yeah. his glory. And, uh, yeah, I, I certainly heard that implied and perhaps even told. But it's interesting now, the pastors across the world, the pastors across the United States, how many key positions those who went with with that mentality. Well, I would say, you know, as a graduate of Northland, I think, uh, we, you know, many of us left just with the idea, let's just go serve. Right. I, I mean, I, really, I don't think, at least not for me and the people I know, nobody went out searching for dreams, some, yeah, really. High positions. No, no, we just did really go out to find places where we could serve and try to be faithful. And Doc, maybe I could just come back to that and I'd say it because I know that you wouldn't, but, um, you know, it's just such a, I think, an honor and a tribute to you and others uh, that, you know, the example that we saw, the mentoring that took place, where that, you know, you can't fake that that kind of humility. I'm. It just really was. We're going to try to serve God and be faithful, and it doesn't matter what everybody else, anybody else sees. Let's be faithful to God, and yeah. that's good enough, and we'll see what God does with that. And I'm really thankful for that, not just for me, but I think for many people and for the cause of Christ and the cause of uh, you know gospel preaching churches around the world. Thank you for that emphasis, that, stu that servant leadership emphasis. Well, I've, I've often said that anything I am or ever hope to be is a result of God's goodness, God's faithfulness, and others' goodness to, to us. And uh, because I look at myself, we look at ourselves, there is nothing good in us except him. And uh, so our, our reputation is in him. Our identity is in him. Yeah. And so uh, it really doesn't matter how others would perceive at that point, long as we can hear the well done mm. when we stand before him. We were talking earlier, or you were talking earlier about faith, and you connected with, it with risk. Um, and, uh, and I think when you and I were talking, you also connected the word ownership to that. I'm just trying to track, 
you know, this idea, you, you took a significant step of faith when you said yes to the Northland call and other calls in your life. It involved risk. Um, and God seemed to, I mean, it's one of those things that we read in the scriptures, right? That God does bless our faith. And this is what he's trying to grow in us. What does that mean to you? What's it look like if you're thinking ministry context? Well, the first thing I think of is Hebrews 11. Hmm. Every one listed in Hebrews 11 could be on as a risk taker because they operated by faith, not that which they could see or figure it out ahead of time. And so when you look at the consequence, the results of all of that, I mean, you look at Moses, potentially could have been the next pharaoh. And that's what I challenge the the uh, college student or the the group that I call it GoPro, but it's a this the, the young pros. Young pros, GoPro yeah. is good though. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that's our group here at Harvest. And, and, and I, I challenge them, and I challenge them from Moses. There had to be an evaluation, choosing rather. There had to be a determination. There had to be a a uh, continuation on what uh, what he had decided to do. And, and here's Moses, potentially could have been the next pharaoh, but he chose rather. Hmm. I mean, when you look at what he chose rather, hmm. to lead that many million people. Suffer affliction suffer with the children affliction. of God. <laughs> rather. And, uh, and so, uh, and, I, and I said kind of kiddingly, that they gave Moses such a headache, God gave him two tablets uh, <laughs> to take care of these headaches. And I said, for every headache we face in ministry, God's given us his tablets, mm -hmm. the word, uh, to face those headaches. But uh, Moses said, uh, Noah, I mean, you go all the way through. And uh, that's what how I would define risk, not foolishly running willy-nilly, right. but God-directed, God empowered, God called, God placed, but yet it's still up to that individual to make that step. I call it jumping off the cliff that uh, and knowing that God's in control and God is going to do that. So, Well, faith is connected inherently with the not seen part in Hebrews 11. Uh, it's the evidence of things not seen. We don't, we don't know. We can't affirm uh, for sure the next step. And we're willing to follow and obey, as you said, you know, without being able to see the end. And that's so crucial. I mean, it's so crucial in, in trying to get people to serve the Lord, to make a commitment to serve the Lord when, when maybe it doesn't make sense. To move where? To move to Guam? to move to China, to move to wherever that God would would place. And uh, and sometimes they have to go against a lot of counsel. They have to go against a lot of warnings. But yet they say, no, this is what God wants, and this is, uh, this is the step of faith that we're going to take. And it would be a lot more comfortable to stay doing what I'm doing. But I do believe that ministries would be much profited, greatly profited, if more people would be willing to just say, God, you take me and use me for your glory. And even if in my, it doesn't make sense. It's been a recurring theme by God's 
hand in your teaching this week for us. Uh, you know, you have been uh, part of our, our in-service for our staff and have taught with our church and a number of different ministries, taught in the Bible College. I've heard this in multiple sessions, just this uh, a life abandoned, right? Abandoning right. our life. And I, I've been just challenged again by what that means and we've got to call people to. Yeah, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, uh, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. And that's literally a leaping out and exposing my back as I make this leap of faith. With all thine heart, lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. I read this morning in, in uh, Proverbs 16, 3, commit thy works unto the Lord and thy thoughts will be established. So you get up and say, God, I'm committing this to you today. You establish my thinking in this because God said, if you commit your works, I will establish your thinking in that in that work. And uh, it's uh, it's just, it'd be a lot easier on our flesh if we just had everything comfortable, everything was known ahead of time, there were no uncertainties as we make those steps. And uh, and I tell students, uh, I said, uh, if you never go anywhere, you never stumble, but you never go anywhere either. Mm -hmm. If you don't take a step, you'll never stumble, but you, you'll never go anywhere. And uh, so we, we want to be moving. Someone asked me jokingly, could you know you're getting older and work on a, Asked if I had a, a stationary bike. I said, nope. I said, I, it reminds me too much of my ministry, paddling like mad and pedaling like mad and going nowhere. I said, <laughs> I don't need any more reminders of that. But the, the Lord's in control as, as we commit ourselves to him. An abandoned life is not, uh, doesn't seem as popular. Uh, no, no. It, it, and to some unfortunate, it appears foolish. Mm-hmm. But yet, when you look at who God used, you see a big difference. And I remember challenging the young people way back in the late 60s, early 70s, I made a listing of culture impactors. And I made the listing, the names, and uh, what they did, what the world did, what God did, and what was the result. And I had them dig out the answers. And I put all these names of these risk takers. Mm -hmm. and, and I said, you decide. Mm -hmm. When Noah, I mean, they 120 years, they laughed, mocked. No one believed except his family. And I say sometimes, you know, sometimes comically, but... Uh, Noah's stock was floating high when the world was in liquidation mm -hmm. and all the mockers were gone. And so when, when, uh, they, when the rain started after 120 years, and I'm sure there were still mockers, and I, I say, I think the Hebrew word there was, uh-oh, that nut was right. I'm not sure that's the exact Hebrew <laughs> word, but I think, uh-oh, that nut was right. But you look at those who, Walk by faith, step by faith. You think of the Daniel, the Josephs. I mean, I read those stories. I thought, I mean, they just had to have such a trust in God that 
it did not matter where it went from there because they knew what God wanted them to be and what he wanted them to do. And boy, what a difference it makes. Well, Daco, I don't know, you know, who all will be able to listen to this, influenced by it in, in the future. Uh, you know, I, I know your voice has influenced Harvest, and I hope even in this conversation, again, our church family and others across our island would hear again the call to an, an abandoned life. Harvest is filled with a lot of people who have have done that. And then there's uh, there's others that God's still working in our hearts, and he's moving us along. But, uh, you know, there might be, um, I was just thinking about, you know, some former students that uh, heard your voice call us to that kind of a life, you know, maybe some years ago. And, and you know how life goes. Sometimes uh, we settle in and we settled and we settle. Um, maybe even now they might hear again your voice, God's voice saying, abandon, abandon life, give it up, it's worth it. So thank you for saying it again. Yeah, and I, and I think that when we see ministry as a stewardship, not an ownership, yeah, that makes a huge difference in mentality. Mm-hmm. You say, well, what if God takes that ministry from you? It's up to him to give another stewardship. If I felt ownership of any ministry I've ever been connected with, you get half rift. No, God's going to give another stewardship because when you don't own it, there's no pressure the owner is the one who has the pressure responsibility. The steward is the one who just faithfully does what he is to do. And it is required of a steward that he be what? Found faithful. And so we can do the faithful part, uh, but the ownership part was be, would be a little tough because there's too much pressure with ownership that stewardship is a matter of walking in obedience. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to be a faithful steward. Well, I've already told you personally, that's a hard thing. And I think a hard thing for a lot of us because passionate people, um, we have a tendency to, you know, to give ourselves to something and it's easy to cross that line from giving myself to something to this is mine, you know, <laughs> this, is, right. this is ownership. And, and I think we need to feel a sense of that, yeah. which gives us that responsibility, accountability, sure. but never to the point where it affects our spirit if Absolutely. it's taken from us. That's the key, right? And if if, if the people don't follow, it's, uh, no, I'm faithful as a steward. I, I, I can't make people do or make people follow. And uh, it, there's just a subtle peace in, in the midst of all of that. That's a good place to transition to uh, finishing well. Um, we talked earlier about how God has used you over the last 10 plus years. Um, and, uh, in, uh, just speaking, you know, all across the country, around the world, the connections with, uh, building great leaders, what's been the fulfillment of that for you? Well, one of the big fulfillments is seeing the fruit of early labors, Mm as I go to Africa, as I go to Dominican, as I go to to Puerto Rico, as I go to different parts of the world, and uh, and I see the fruit. Here, students I meet in Uruguay couldn't speak English yeah. when they came to school. Yeah. Or were translated by others who knew Spanish as they were coming, and I see them not running colleges and seminaries, I see others who came as young people 
with a ability, say, God, I want you to use me. That's the number one thing that we've seen as we've traveled, the fruit of that. And uh, and then secondly, as you, as you look at that, and what was the other part of the question that you asked on that? Yeah, I mean, that's it. Just the the fulfillment of seeing, you know, what God's doing, how God's using you during this yeah, season. Yeah, the fulfillment. Then when we go in and uh, see the work, see the work of uh, the, uh, that is being done by these, and you you begin to say, God, that's, you know, how could you have allowed us, to, you were so good to allow us to be a tiny part mm -hmm. of, uh, of what is there. And, uh, and no matter where you go, there's someone who comes and says, you know, and if, one of the things that has been a thrill to me is alumni who have come and said, you know, we kind of resisted when we had to get up at seven in the morning and to get into the White Chapel when you were teaching us to build a biography of our God. And um, and so they, because they come to college, say, now we're adults. We'll wake up when we want to wake up. And here this egghead has us coming into this white chapel seven o'clock in the morning when we could have slept till 9.30. And, uh, but they said, you know, in spite of the fact that some said I had an attitude about it, we did it, but, but they said, it is that which has stayed us good when we've hit the wall. I remember one couple told me they had lost their child and they say, you know what, you know what stood us good? We, we didn't quit. Those attributes that we learned that God is indeed sovereign. God is indeed in control. God is indeed perfect love. God is indeed perfect holiness. He is not one who is careless. And, and, uh, and so that's been a thrill to me because I knew I took a lot of hassle as a leader at that point mm -hmm. that uh, that's getting us up. And you, we got this legalist president, John, and he has his nerves trying to get us to know our God better. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's kind of odd. You know, that's kind of odd. You came to study to be servants of the Lord. You get ripped because somebody asked you to know your God better. So I thought, I okay, I guess I'm a legalist or whatever they want to call me. And I've been called a lot. Worse things than illegalism, I'll guarantee it. But, uh, but the joy is the response. That's what, even though we didn't like that necessarily, that's what stood us good when we hit the wall. And that is what we have to get to know. We have to get to know our God. And knowing him, that would cause me to reflect him and reflect who he is. And, and that keeps us, that keeps us going. If you study, Second uh, Timothy chapter four, Paul's baccalaureate to us. Uh, you study what he says, the challenge to Timothy, and then he says, "I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith." They're all perfect tenses. Paul didn't say I attained perfection. He said, I have been fighting. I have been finishing. I have been keeping. So what was he doing? He said, I show up every day for battle. Mm -hmm. That's how I've lived my Christian life. I've shown up every day for battle. Haven't attained perfection. Have not attained, neither already perfect. And then he, right in the middle of it, interestingly enough, he said, and Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Paul was not grieving 
for himself mm-hmm. because he knew his head was going to roll within hours. I mean, they didn't hide. They, they didn't think that you're going to come and we're going to give you your Timothy Award uh, for your Awana work. He knew his head was going to roll. So why would he mention Demas? I think he so deeply loved Demas with whom he worked for those years. He realized Demas is chucking it all. After all these years of paying the price and serving and sacrificing and suffering, and he's going to lose it all. Yeah, He'll be saved, yes. He's forsaken me, having loved this present world. I think that so deeply grieved Paul for Demas's sake, because I think that's how deeply Paul loved the co-workers that he had. And then uh, he said, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And Paul says, yeah, I fought, I finished, I've kept, but henceforth. And we have to keep the henceforth in mind. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to those who love his appearing. And when we look at that, that's a motivation for continuation. Well, our enemy is trying to distract all of us. And uh, for some now that, you know, have had a few years in ministry, you find how easy it is, right, for that love in this present world to begin to distract. And as we're talking about you finishing well, our prayer is that, you know, uh, generation of those who've heard your voice over these years would would uh, be able to finish well you know the same and, and we're thankful for that hey let me give you just a couple thoughts as we as we wind this down here's a less old quote you will always be relevant if you speak eternal truth yeah that's so true isn't it yeah you will never not be relevant uh, if if truth is your is your proclamation you, you'll always be relevant and it doesn't matter what the age, doesn't matter what the conditions of the age, uh, truth is always relevant. Well, you've, I was telling our staff, you've had a unique way throughout your life of uh, communicating to all different generations, and you always have, um, and you continue to do that. And you're right, it's connected with that truth. Um, and, and so that's awesome. Dr. O, friendships, uh, kind of life of friendships. Yeah, how crucial are friendships? I mean, to me, when Paul looked at his co-workers, the tightest touch. Here, Paul in Second Corinthians chapter twelve, uh, and I think I think I even mentioned it in one of the uh, one of our early sessions that he said, "When I came to you in Troas, we were stretched beyond measure." In other words, we were in our flesh. We were beyond our ability. Paul was in depression. And he said, Titus, his brother came to give him not only his consolation, but also his comfort. The words that he brought, you remember here's Paul was a leader, a church planter. And he had to write a very, very tough letter called 1 Corinthians. I think Paul, I think that bothered him so much. He loved those people so deeply. And the fact that he had to speak so stringently the truth, I think it just gnawed at him. 
He did not know you can get on internet and bingo and know within 14 seconds uh, everything that was happening. No, he didn't know. He didn't know the letter had to be carried. Word and and Titus came back not only as a comfort to Paul, who was in depression. The consolation was Paul, they got the letter. They repented with a godly repentance. They love you. That will snap any leader out. Because I'm sure in all of your years of pastoring, there were times when you preached the message, oh, I didn't want to do that, but yet I had to. And yet you couldn't sleep that night because you think, I didn't intend to hurt people. I want to be a help and obey God in preaching his truth. Mm -hmm. And then somebody comes and says, you know, pastor, that is exactly what we needed. And not only do I feel the way, Many other people have told me that very same thing. That is, and you know, all of a sudden, you can go without another night's sleep just rejoicing because there's something about that friendship that came in. The, the comfort came in the friendship. The consolation came in the words that that friend brought. Then you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and I think Paul resisted serving. I think he left a wide-open door of opportunity that God opened for him. I think that Paul was in depression at that point. And uh, he said, uh, when I came to you, God had opened the door for me to preach the gospel, but took leave of them because I found not Titus my brother. Mm -hmm. I mean, here, you, you mean to tell me the great apostle Paul, God opened the door and Paul didn't do it? No, he didn't. Why? He wanted to go find his friend. What did he and his friend eventually do? The school of Tyrannus in that rented space in the afternoon started discipling for two years or a year and a half to two years, built those people, and guess what they did? Reached that entire region. So the work was done. But it was a friendship yeah. that Paul had to find. We are not designed to function as loners. Mm -hmm. And how crucial is, is friendship? Well, God's given you um, some important friendships through your life. And we're not looking for your top five, but I, I know that you really have had people that walk beside you. And that's been, been important at different seasons, right? Oh, it's very crucial because I, I feel, as I said in one of our sessions, and I think years and years ago I read this somewhere, that we all need three people in our life. We need a Paul who is a pattern to us. That is one to whom we can look and say, that's the model that I want to follow. We need a pal, like a Titus or a Timothy, who can be a pal to us and the kind of person you can open your heart and pour your heart in. As I've traveled with, as you know, the staff we had at Northland and, and uh I would never travel alone, rarely, rarely ever travel alone. Always a staffer or two that would come with. And why? Because you had a prayer, praying partner, you had a laughing partner, you had somebody when the airlines went haywire, you could laugh your way through it. <laughs> uh, you could go out for pizza, go back to the room, uh, and, and you get the Martys and the Martys and the, uh, and the uh, Sams, and you go on down the line, and the laughter that we had while we were in the midst of some strenuous service sometimes. 
uh, you know what you can you can open your heart and say you know really pray for me but you can you couldn't open your heart to certain people but these are the the pals that you really have as close and then you need a project a timothy and what a project will do what timothy will do will give me accountability in other words uh if i'm going to build another person of friendship to more spiritual growth, I have to be walking that walk. So there is accountability. If I, okay, I'm going to meet with that. So if all of us in our churches had a Paul who is a pattern to us, a pal who is a prayer partner or somebody with who can laugh, go to their home and play games, get on your knees and pray, you could share your greatest fears and failures. And then you have a... Uh, a Timothy who you know you're meeting that week and you need to be walking with God yourself if you're going to challenge that person. Those three people, if everyone in our local churches had those three people in their life, it would change our churches. Absolutely. It yeah. really would. And because we we need that. We are not designed to work alone. And it's it's so true. I don't know if that makes sense or yeah, not. Absolutely. But yeah. yeah, thank you. Thank How you. crucial friendships are. Yeah. And... And you know, those friendships go on and on and on and on and on. And uh, they don't end because they were genuine. Yeah. And you have friends all around the world. Yes. And uh, that's an awesome thing. I told Charlene, I said, our retirement program, we're going to spend the first half of our life making friends, the second half visiting them. <laughs> so, uh, so we get good plan. Yeah. As long as they have a bed for us. So that's kind of a unique retirement plan. Yeah. So, yeah. I love it. Do you have any. Uh, regrets that uh, you know might be helpful for somebody that's uh, listening as you kind of look back on life. Anything would be helpful for us? Yeah, I th I think a lot of the choices I made in the investment of my time on our family was younger. I, I never regretted the time uh, that my wife and I had because we we were always together. Now, when when the kids were smaller, I traveled with other staff members, not with Charlene, because she couldn't go. To uh, to a lot of these places because it's the realism to get the kids up, get them fed breakfast, and get them off to school. Yeah. Uh, so that was a certain time of our life. And uh, but I think I think that as I looked at every weekend commitment that I had when I was president at Northland, getting on an airplane Friday night and coming back late, late Sunday, or if the flight got canceled sometime Monday. I always wanted to get back for works of God testimonies on Monday. And and I regret the I regret the use of time that I, I wish I, I would have been wiser in that time. I wish I had been more consistent we had the family gatherings at breakfast because every morning Charlene had a full breakfast. That was our basically our family time around the table. But I wish that I had developed later, while I did it with other groups, a little bit longer time at the supper time to where there would be more of a more of a devotional, a devotional challenge uh, along that line, and uh, and then secondly I. I wish I could go back and be wiser in helping some of my children select friends. 
I think I was too trusting. I was too trusting. If the family's Christian, I was trusting. Yeah, you can stay the night over there, right? So and so, and I think that uh, I think I would I would have been much much more careful on uh, helping with the friendships, and uh, not that I was a total flop in that area, but I I think that uh, that those are two things that come to mind very clearly. And other things, you know, I've, and, and no matter how, how God worked at Northland, there were times that I thought, did I make a mistake not going to Reading? And, uh, and Charlene keeps saying, honey, how did God narrow this down for us? And said, you did not make a mistake in that choice. It wasn't constant. There were times that it, it came up. Yeah. That, you know, did I did I make did I make a wrong choice there? But anyway, well, well, I, I think we could be here for two and a half hours <laughs> if we get into more detail. If I uh, start well, sharing Yeah, well for me so. and hundreds of others, we're thankful that God did lead you there and you said yes in obedience and the impact and the influence that you've had over these years is just uh you know give all the glory to god but we are we are so thankful for that um one last thing uh quote god owns me and i'm not free to choose my own way that's right that is so true when i flew back to california if you could have seen the scenario that was presented to me there as opposed to what i looked at at dunbar uh, the man who picked me up, he said, when are you moving? I said, Guy, his name was Guy. I said, Guy, God wants us in Wisconsin. He said, are you crazy? <laughs> I mean, literally, he got angry. And uh, and so, you know, when I look at that, at that aspect of it, that uh, it, it, it was a, it was kind of a kind of a shocker as you as you look at that uh what was there as compared to what what it took and then i i think i said uh i'm trying to remember the the particular statements that i made uh regarding that particular sure. oh i said oh I, here's what i said i said guy i don't own me to make that decision. That's how I answered him. Because, Are you crazy? I said, Guy, I don't own me to make that decision. I am not my own. I said, if I owned me, it would not have even been a decision. But because I don't own me, I have to obey the direction of the of the one who who has called and placed and opened that door. So and that that was where I I think that that quote, in fact, I stuck to that many times. Yeah. That is, I don't own me to make the decisions for myself. Well, by God's grace, I hope that uh, men, that idea, that philosophy is a part of many, many other people for this generation and the generations to come, uh, trusting that your, uh, your leadership and your mentorship and your influence will impact, you know, many for the cause of Christ. Um, uh, you know, this, uh, this generation was made for this day and for this age. And sometimes we can look at it and think, well, it feels overwhelming, but 
Um, we're praying that God would raise up a generation, would have a heart after God, and would you know maybe follow in the footsteps of some leaders like Les Olala. So, Daco, thank you again. Thank you for your time here uh, over these last couple days, the last week here, and thank you for your influence in our lives. We uh, we love you. Hope that you feel that, and uh, and we're grateful for your for your mentorship and your ministry. I do feel that, and by the way, I am a member here. You are, yeah. yes, yeah. And, uh, and so uh, I probably come as often as some of the members who live in town here, but <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just kidding. But uh, it's it's special. It's home to me. When we come here, it's like home. It really is. There's, there's no odd feeling or awkward feeling, and so well, thank we're glad. You so much. Yeah, we're glad you feel that. All right, thanks. And thank you for listening to Harvest Time. Just wrapping up this two-part series with Dr. Les Olala today. You can learn more about Dr. Olala and the Ministry of Building Great Leaders at bgleaders.org, bgleaders.org. And part one of this interview can be found at khmg.org, khmg.org. Thanks again for listening to Harvest Time.